Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched uh, during 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. Uh, we have another great talk focused on community impact and philanthropy and science today. And we can, when we can find that intersection, uh, that's really the sweet spot that we like to cover here on SALT Talks. And our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Simons. Uh, Dr. Simons is the president and chief operating officer of the Prostate Cancer Foundation, PCF, uh, which was founded in 1993. And it focuses on research and resources for a disease that one in nine American men will be diagnosed with in their lifetimes, and which also claims 34,000 lives each year. Just as a quick personal anecdote, my father uh, had prostate cancer and was cured and has lived uh, many years beyond that. So thank, thankful for the work uh, of Dr. Simons and his team uh, at the Prostate Can Cancer Foundation on that piece. But uh, the fight is personal to Jonathan as well, who is the husband, son, and grandson of cancer survivors. Uh, he's board certified in internal medicine and medical oncology. He received his medical degree from Johns Hopkins University and did his residency at Boston's Mass General as well as a clinical fellowship in medical oncology at Johns Hopkins Oncology Center. Uh, before joining PCF in 2007, uh, he was the Distinguished Service Professor of Hematology and Oncology at Emory University School of Medicine, my alma mater, uh, and Professor of Biomedical Engineering and Material Sciences at Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech. Uh, Dr. Simons is the founding director of Emory's Winship Cancer Institute and co-director of the National Cancer Institute Center for Cancer Nanotechnology Excellence at Emory and Georgia Tech. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Uh, and he's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. John, thank you. And Dr. Simons, thanks for being here. You know, you mentioned cancer and cancer survivorship. It's obviously all very personal. You're Grandfather survived. I believe uh, your dad uh, was one of the first people treated at the National Cancer Institute for Lymphoma and was cured or put into remission. Uh, your wife is a cancer survivor. My wife is actually a cancer survivor. She uh, had bladder cancer at the young age of 21, which was sort of hard to believe, but they say it was related to drinking water around the Love Canal where she had gone to school up in uh, Buffalo, uh, University of Buffalo. So we, we have cancer in our lives. Unfortunately, every, just about everybody listening has a cancer story. Tell us about the journey that brought you to your cancer research. Well, my story, like um, so many stories, is not that unusual. One in three American families will experience cancer. Um, and I'm glad, John, your dad's doing well, and I'm glad, Anthony, your wife's doing well. But my, was what was formative for me is my, my father uh, uh, was cured after relapsing um, several times from Hodgkin's disease on a clinical trial. So as a, a kid interested um, in science, if I couldn't make it to the major league baseball career. And I, I thought basically cancer research was heroic. 
and um, because I, I literally saw the um, curability of the incurable illness kind of unfold in our lives. And my father recurred several times. Um, so we, he faced an existential threat. Um, but I think that's a story that uh, so many families can tell in different ways. Um, but um, th that's really mine. So I was interested in being a doctor in a, in a cancer scientist and developing the treatment and got very interested in prostate cancer um, as a consequence of uh, a baseball coach who got prostate cancer uh, before there was a blood test to detect it and who succumbed in under uh, 12 months of diagnosis. So I got interested in prostate cancer because I was interested in seeing prostate cancer go the way of Hodgkin's disease, which went from incurable to curable. You know, th th this is uh, uh, an interesting disease. I'd like you to lay it out for people. It's obviously a, a male disease. Uh, breast cancer is probably 97% women, but there's a small percentage of men that also get breast cancer. But yet this is a male disease, uh, treatable, we have way more understanding of it as a result of your research. So take us back uh, to 1993 when you were awarded as a scientist and a doctor, you were awarded a research grant from the Prostate Cancer Foundation. What were you researching then? Where are we today? Build the continuum for us. Sure. So um, you're right. Uh, prostate cancer is the most common non-skin cancer in men. And um, basically one in eight men and actually one in six black men will get prostate cancer in, his in, in their lifetime, even though now it's, if caught early, the 10 year survival for prostate cancer is 98%. But in 1993, uh, it was woefully behind, given the amount of it and this, basically the public perception it was a disease of old men. It took um, somebody uh, to change the equation and that was a 40 year old man named Michael Milken who was diagnosed with prostate cancer told he was terminally ill. Um, he, he sounded pretty good on the phone yesterday. Um, and he said, I'm gonna um, change the course of medical history and accelerate uh, work on this cancer. And really Mike invented, as we now really understand it, entrepreneurial or, or, or venture philanthropy for cancer research, um, but basically used every relationship he had, used his entire Rolodex uh, in order to try to assemble partnerships between uh, philanthropic support, biotech and pharma investment and uh, significant government investment to basically deliver uh, new treatments and better detection. And really, if you're looking at return on investment, and I know your viewers are interested in ROI and a lot of things, there's been, since Mike was diagnosed, a 53% reduction in the death rate from prostate cancer. John, your, your dad's a part of the story, right? That's the largest decrease, absolute decrease in death rate in any of the major cancers. And that's a consequence of a heavy investment in research, uh, public awareness, and partnerships. Um, but we, we must still do better. An African-American man is still twice as likely to die of this disease as uh, a white man in the United States. And for every man in his uh, family, we have the opportunity in this decade to really put um, prostate cancer in the rear view mirror as a major public health threat. But we, we um, 
you know, prostate cancer hasn't stopped in the pandemic and neither is uh, prostate cancer research or our foundation. Tell, tell us about ways men need to think about it. How, how do they potentially pre prevent it? Uh, Michael Milken obviously has come to our SALT events. He's spoken many times, once in Singapore, a few times in um, Las Vegas. He's always talking about nutrition. Dr. Simons, what, tell us a little bit about what men can do to uh, protect themselves. Obviously the PSA tests, et cetera, but give us a, uh, a portfolio of things that people can do. There are three things that a man could do. They can talk to, <clears throat> excuse me, they can, they can talk to their family about risk because um, in the same way you put on seat belts because there's a risk of a car accident, they can talk about risk. They can get screened. I can talk more about that. And they can really take charge of the future of their health. And the, and the way to do that is um, assume that you're very likely to get the disease and you'd rather live into your 90s and not um, die from it. Um, second, it's 57% of prostate cancer runs in families. It's actually the most inherited of the major cancers. That, um, so at 40, if you have um, Cancer, prostate cancer running in your family, not only do you need to be get checked, you need to be checked at 40. Um, and certainly if you're African-American, given the fact that you have a higher um, lifetime risk of getting the disease, you need to take charge of um, your health once a year and, and basically have a conversation with your, your doctor um, at 40 if the disease is running your family, at 45 if you're African-American, and we believe at 50, if you're of European descent, Th those are the three things. And, you know, basically prostate cancer is to men as breast cancer is to women. We just have to assume far more uh, family interest in our health as men, as uh, women do um, in caring for families um, and caring for themselves. When, uh, when you look back, is there anything in the prostate cancer research that you've done that has led to transformations in the research of other cancers? Yeah, the, the, um, I'm grateful for that question because it's, it's a really important one. The discovery of checkpoint inhibitors that have made melanoma curable and extended the lives, you know, in the Super Bowl, you hear about treatment for lung cancer using the immune system. That discovery was made by James Allison and won a Nobel Prize, but was originally funded. First real foundation support was from the Prostate Cancer Foundation asking the question, how can you turn the immune system on against prostate cancer? So in fact, uh, we've delivered uh, 13 FDA approved drugs, uh, which have significantly extended the survivability of prostate cancer over the years with 800 million in R&D that our foundations invested, but we've really pushed forward uh, rather profoundly uh, progress in over 11 other cancers. And cancer research is just not a zero sum game, particularly as we've come to understand how genes work. And right now we're, we're really prosecuting research on new drugs that target prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer through a gene called WINT pancreatic cancer, colon cancer. And in fact, in curing prostate cancer with these new genomic or gene-based medicines, you're really 
in curing prostate cancer by making these new precision medicines, you're really talking about finishing off 73 other forms of human cancer, including, including childhood brain tumors. So there's a, um, one of the things that my community doesn't do very well is market itself, because we, it's much more interesting to talk uh, kind of nerd to nerd about how interesting these genes are. But, um, but fundamentally, um, this revolution in understanding how genes work through the human genome and then making medicines against genes that are, are rogue and aberrant in a cancer means that cancer is no longer just anatomic. Cancer care isn't just where the cancer came from, it's genomic. It's um, making medicines against the genes. And in the next few years, uh, we're gonna see uh, extraordinary progress. This isn't Pollyannish and basically making new cl classes of medicines that are gonna treat the genomics, not the anatomics. So we'll see FDA approvals, not so much based on did the tumor come from the breast or the bladder or the prostate, but um, um, against really the Achilles heel, the genetic Achilles heels of these tumors. Let's talk about this, the money raising aspect of this and how important it is to your research and Give us a sense for who is underwriting cancer research today. Is it mostly private citizens and foundations and drug companies? Is the government also in there? What does the mix look like now in terms of the, the R&D going into these things? Um, the ecosystem has three major investors uh, and they're all vital to each other uh, and they're codependent if the goal is to and death and suffering from cancer. Foundations like ours can often make the higher risk, most and first kind of like series A round, uh, insightful investments. Our National Institutes of Health, our National Cancer Institute, the Department of Defense, um, uh, invest millions in maybe perhaps in thinking about um, validating or series B and C or or expanding on a discovery. So philanthropic support only, the, the, although it's only 4% of the pie, it's some of the most essential uh, of all the investments because um, it's more, it can be more nimble and uh, it can identify what we would call breakout opportunities, Anthony. But biopharma is essential in scale. There are extraordinary and healthy partnerships. Uh, Mike Milken and others really developed a, a new kind of ecosystem in the 90s and 2000s. When I started at Johns Hopkins, we were told never to go to a drug company research meeting because uh, we were pure and, and they were purely profit driven. That whole culture sort of evaporated um, with the uh, excitement of uh, university scientists and uh, scientists and, and uh, project managers and biopharma trying to accelerate getting um, a scientific development to patients. And our government, uh, probably one of the things that our country still leads the world in, um, regardless of your views on American exceptionalism, uh, sorry, but um, just the way it works right now with COVID. Uh, um, the, um, uh, regardless of your view, your kind of, your, your views about American exceptionalism, We've been an exceptionally generous people at funding basic research. I mean, one of our greatest exports, I think, is actually medical progress. 
and our national institutes of health, and you saw it with the development of um, COVID vaccines at just you know um, meteoric speed. Um, but that meteoric speed in developing these vaccines is happening in cancer research all the time now. But you, you, we, our NIH has just been a huge partner in the reduction of um, deaths as well. Um, it doesn't mean that getting funded for a breakthrough idea is easy. It's actually harder, and it's going to be harder in the COVID economy probably. Um, but it's a proven ecosystem, our cancer research ecosystem. It just has lots of areas where we could still now go faster if we concentrated on um, solving some of the problems and choke points. And a really good example of that's an African-American detection, basically an African-American disparity or health justice, you know, Robert F. Smith uh, made an enormous philanthropic uh, commitment this year to accelerate the development of a, a test. You could um, test blood or uh, you could test saliva to identify African-American men, really men of West African ancestry that have a two to 11 times higher chance of getting prostate cancer. And this, this whole idea of um, transforming even how we screen for cancer by understanding genetics um, it is built on NIH funding and trying to understand how genes work in family, but, but also an impatience for true health justice and trying to invest now in the actual development and um, testing and, and, and final really reduction of practice in communities of color. So, the entrepreneurial philanthropist still is the most important part, we believe, um, entrepreneurial donors, entrepreneurial biomedical research foundations, we think are still the, um, the vital driving force uh, where there's 10x from the government if you can move along the data. That was yeah, a long nerd <laughs> answer. No, it was I get cranked. I get cranked up on this topic because no, this I, 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 I let you go because it's so, so interesting. I, I, our resident millennial, Dr. Simons, is dying to ask a question here. So I have to put myself on mute. Don't let him outshine me, however. Okay, try to talk over me. That's impossible. My IQ is not nearly high enough relative to our, our guest here today. But just to go back to what Anthony said, we, we can't give Michael Milken enough credit for the work he's done as a venture you know, philanthropist in the field of medicine. Uh, you know, he, he has done so much. I don't think people realize uh, how much capital he's driven into the space and the outcomes that it's generated. Uh, so we're very thankful to him. Um, but I have a question. The New England Journal of Medicine uh, noted last year that the pandemic threatened public health, not only because the risk of COVID, uh, but because of its effects on patients with other diagnoses, including cancer. Uh, it could be because risks of immune compromised people visiting offices, for example. Mm -hmm. How does uh, the data show that playing out over the past year? There's no question that we don't have all the data on how disruptive COVID-19 has been in terms of delaying the standard of cancer care. Uh, I'm sure it will be unhappy. Uh, it's made it very, all I can do is speak from my own small but real practice of prostate cancer oncology and talking to colleagues. It slowed down getting surgery or starting radiation, just the logistics of getting patients in and out and tested because we're trying to stagger them. It's, and what's been very, um, very challenging is it slowed down clinical trial accrual 
for cancer medicines that may be breakthrough medicines or really be very, very important part of developing new therapy. Um, but the good news is that uh, I think cancer patients have learned that telemedicine is here and that it may be possible to develop um, ways of actually more efficiently and actually more compassionately interacting with patients using telemedicine on a lot of issues that until uh, COVID we wouldn't have uh, considered. Um, the key is gonna be uh, getting herd immunity established as soon as possible so we can get further and further um, uh, towards sort of the nor normal patient flow. And no question as well, cancer screening rates are down, but I don't know what they are most recently. And we're very concerned about that. And particularly in um, lower socioeconomic environments and communities where um, help we're, we're so concerned about uh, improving uh, cancer screening rates. Yeah, it's, it's a problem that obviously the COVID-19 pandemic has had a disproportionate negative impact on uh, communities, people of color. We talked about that with Paula Schneider of Susan G. Komen, uh, and it's, it's rampant across a variety of different diseases and circumstances. But uh, President Biden is arguably more dedicated to cancer research than any president that we've had uh, in the history of the country. How optimistic are you that we could take a giant leap forward? And from a public policy standpoint, what would you like to see done that hasn't been done before, maybe has been done, but not on a large enough scale to accelerate progress that we're making uh, in cancer research? Well, first of all, I think you're right. I think President Biden will be the most nonpartisan or bipartisan champion of accelerating progress against cancer. And we've had some presidents that have experienced cancer in their families uh, for certain. Um, I, I worked directly with Vice President Biden and his staff, you know, on the uh, Vice President Biden's cancer moonshot. And actually, I have a very specific answer. We think that the, our program with the Veterans Administration and delivering precision oncology. So um, if you're served your country first, you should be first to get cancer research breakthroughs uh, for prostate cancer. We think that um, in this administration, not only will um, medical care and cancer care really improve in the Veterans Administration, but there's an opportunity to take the nation's largest health system with actually the best electronic medical record uh, and really uh, uh, push forward how clinical trials are delivered, how we um, basically learn how to deliver precision care for all forms of cancer. And second, I think uh, President Biden's gonna be a champion of uh, basic cancer research uh, or basically fundamental discoveries that could bring breakthroughs in earlier detection or medicines. But also I think this is administrations can be very interested in all the choke points. Uh, what's, um, what's slowing us down? Well, um, the ease of letting rural Americans take place in clinical trials or um, uh, uh, Americans um, in urban areas take place in clinical trials. Because um, right now only four in a hundred Americans are taking with cancer or even participating in a clinical trial. So even if we got that to 20%, that would be five times as fast as delivering to the FDA, you know, packages of Zeta that um, show benefit. And last, I think, I think uh, this administration is a real champion also uh, for the important role of nursing. And our, our system needs to um, readdress the um, 
in our healthcare system in particular, how vital uh, for the future health of our country, uh, nursing is and particularly um, advanced practice oncology nursing. And here I am a, a physician scientist talking about nursing, but I, I think that this is, uh, these are gonna be very positive developments. Yeah, and how, how has uh, sort of data improved and our ability to process data relative to cancer. I feel like uh, we talk to a lot of people in the healthcare space and they talk about how we haven't, because of legitimate rules around privacy and things like that, haven't been able to sequence enough data, large enough data sets to really make huge progress. I had a, a, somebody I knew uh, in New York, their brother was a founder of Flatiron Health, which you might be familiar with, uh, backed by Google, acquired by Roche, that was trying to uh, gain greater access to that data and process that data in a more effective way. Are you optimistic about breakthroughs and data processing as it relates to oncology generally? I'm aspirational and hopeful. Um, I feel sort of like the way we handle data in medicine is sort of like uh, January 1942 after Pearl Harbor, we had a Navy prepared for the last war, right? Uh, we only had, you know, four aircraft carriers, even though air power was going to be the, the essential um, element for um, world, for winning uh, the war against the fascists. I, I, we all know in oncology, we all know in medical research that uh, the silos of data right now between the laboratory and the clinic and data scientists are, are woefully antiquated uh, given the opportunities, if you can, if you can sequence uh, the human genome for less than one third the cost of a CAT scan, but you can't get that information to a doctor and to a pharmacist and to uh, researchers. Just look at our challenges right now with sequencing COVID. Um, you know, basically defining the genetic. This is like a surveillance. Um, problem that's trivial in terms of its genomics. But just look right now at our public health system's challenges in terms of assembling data on variants. I'm hopeful that we completely reevaluate how we can protect patient privacy, but also put the patient first from the standpoint of getting the benefits of all this scientific and medical knowledge. And our electronic health records are geared to paying the Currently, our electronic health records are, are designed for reimbursement. They're not designed to ideally care for the next patient based on the, the science we know. Um, so we're going to have to put patients again first in terms of how we think about big data. And we're going to need to uh, allow data to be analyzed by all kinds of people in ways where we protect privacy. So in the long term, I'm optimistic. Um, but uh, we haven't seen, we, um, well, there's been a lot of talk, we haven't seen a great example yet of a fully integrated health system. That, and, and again, I'm cranked up about this. That's why we're so optimistic about the Veterans Administration, actually, um, because they actually collect um, outcomes data um, independent of reimbursement. I'm not saying reimbursement isn't important, but what I am saying is that um, we need a complete redesign in how we look at um, medical data and allow data scientists to make these important observations.
Well, I could ask you a lot more questions, but I'm going to turn it back over to Anthony to see if he has any final words before we let you go, Dr. Simon, so you can get back to uh, your important work that you do every day. Well, you know, my, my question is about the future, Doc. You know, you, you, you're, you, you seem like you're on the cusp of a lot of breakthroughs and you seem like you've helped to integrate the narrative around cancer therapies with other types of cancers through your research. So where are we five and 10 years from now uh, if things go well? Uh, build us an optimistic case, if you don't mind. I am optimistic based on the facts. There'll be no clinical decision without precision. Your genes will be sequenced. Um, your, the expressed RNA will be sequenced and we'll be treating the right patient with the right drug at the right time or making the right clinical decision based on um, an extraordinary understanding of the disease that you have. That, so that's, so. I, I, second, uh, if we can solve our access to care issues, um, if we can, um, if we can solve basically the delivery of um, these amazing things, I see a real steep drop in cancer deaths by the end of the decade because we're also going to be doing precision detection like this Robert F. Smith test um, or the polygenic risk test effort. Basically, we'll be able to um, pediatricians will be able to help families understand their lifetime uh, cancer risk. And getting back to nutrition, we'll have uh, a very good understanding of food as medicine, not you know trendy um, trendy thinking as medicine, but we'll have kind of the core metabolic understanding of what makes a healthier lifestyle, and then we'll have apps um, and um, I think reinforcing uh, products to allow us to really live. Um, healthier lives. I actually think that this is going to be, this is not only going to be the greatest decade in the history of medical research, um, just the breathtaking speed of the COVID vaccines or the fact that we had seven FDA approvals in the midst, in, you know, hidden in plain sight with COVID, we had seven FDA approvals for prostate cancer, which is a record year, all really driven by, again, sort of early stage funding by our foundation and then leverage by the government and biopharma. I think it's going to be a decade where um, patients will be partners in their care, um, whether they're millennials, John, or not. I, I think health apps and the, uh, a general understanding that um, um, with good health information, you can be a partner in your care is, uh, is going to actually improve the care of everyone. So I'm actually very optimistic about the decade if we can just... Um, Again, if we can just stay very focused on um, supporting cancer search and more broadly, uh, biomedical research is one of the most important humanitarian things um, we could be doing in this country for the world. Before, before we let you go, you mentioned the vaccines. So have you been vaccinated, doctor? I have. And are the vaccines safe? Yes. That's what the data says. Okay. And so, but what would you be concerned about? Uh, because we have you know, just play this out for me because we have people that are concerned about the vaccines. The data says they're safe. Do we need more data or was the data acceptable for you to get yourself vaccinated? So tell us what you think. We need more data in areas where we constantly need more data. In fact, what we need is a learning health system. That would have been the punchy answer to your big data question. So we need a lot more data, but um, by everything, um, 
by everything we know, um, it's much better to be vaccinated than not. And we're not over coronavirus infections as the variants show. So we need to become confident again that our health systems and our biomedical research efforts um, keep good ethical values, but are trying to basically um, save lives. Well, no, I appreciate it. I just, there's a, unfortunately, we are in the age of tremendous amounts of information, but we're also in the age, unfortunately, of tremendous amounts of disinformation. And so uh, you and I, John, Michael Milken, we're believers in science matters and facts first. And so would you recommend this vaccine to your patients and family members? I am. Okay. Actually, right. you know, Anthony, you've, you're very articulate, you're a student of history, and um, you know that the um, at any moment in history, there's more that's unknown than known. So we have to be comfortable with continuing to learn, learn about this disease, but we also have to be comfortable uh, with um, evidence. And the evidence from randomized clinical trials, which is our best way of doing this, not the fastest way is to, uh, to do this, is the best evidence is if um, is to be vaccinated uh, to prevent yourself from dying of uh, COVID-19 and spreading it. Amen. All right. Well, I want to I want to leave it on that. I think I think it's an optimistic note. We don't know everything but we are advancing and uh, we're, we're doing the best that we can. It's in the best interest of our citizens and our society to get vaccinated. It'll, it'll protect them against the pandemic and future potential variants, et cetera. Anything else you want to add, Darcy? That's it. Just want to thank want Dr. To call Simons. Him Peter or something like that before he leaves? No. There's a P call in prostate. Him. So do you want to call him Peter before he leaves? Or just ask? I think I got this one nailed down. This okay, I just check it with, uh, with Paula Schneider of the Susan G. Komen Foundation. But I just want to thank you, Dr. Simons, for all the work you've done. You know, my father's one of millions of people. He's both a prostate cancer survivor and a skin cancer survivor. So uh, all the research that you've done, both directly related to prostate cancer, as well as the other uh, cancers that you and Anthony were speaking about earlier, uh, it's allowed him, this is more than a decade ago now, uh, to live a long, healthy life. And he's now been vaccinated. So uh, we hopefully don't have to worry too much about coronavirus with, with him or my mother as well. So thank you for all the work you're doing. Well, thanks for uh, the time today. And, and good luck with... Um, delivering the truth to people. We're, we're working on much. it every day, sir. It's a, it's a work in progress every day. It, it has been since the dawn of man. Amen. Amen. It's getting a little bit, it's a little bit tricky now, man. We got a lot of different disinformation out there that we're trying to fight back. Well, right, good luck. But good uh, thank you again, Dr. Simons. And, and thank you, everybody who tuned in to today's SALT Talk. Just by tuning in and learning uh, and spreading awareness of the progress that's being made, as well as the facts on the ground, uh, you're doing a service not just to yourself and your family, but to society as well. So if you have the means to donate to the Prostate Cancer Foundation, uh, please do. You know, we always put our money where our mouth is and contribute to these causes that we feature here on SALT Talks. And if you're able to do so, please do. If you can't, 
protect yourself and pr protect your family. You know, go get checked, go to the doctor. If you have a history of cancer in your family, uh, you especially need to get checked frequently, uh, but encourage family members and friends to get checked as well and, and encourage them to follow the facts and get vaccinated and, and get checked for a variety of different diseases. But uh, thank you for joining us. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous SALT talks or wanna sign up for our upcoming talks, you can do all of that on our website at salt.org backslash talks. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel where we host all of our videos for free uh, to try to broaden access as much as possible to these ideas that we feature here on SALT Talks on a variety of issues. And please follow us on social media. We're, as well as being on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Uh, and on behalf of the entire SALT team and Anthony, this is John Darcy signing, up, uh, signing off from SALT Talks for today. We'll see you back here again soon.